So our scripture reading today is found on page 1016, if you're using the Black Bibles that are provided for you as we continue to look at Luke. We're in Luke chapter 1. We just recently, uh, two weeks ago, began uh, our new series in the book of Luke, which is very convenient for the time of year we're in because the first two chapters of Luke uh, fit very well into an Advent season of worship and celebration. And so uh, that's what we're looking at right now. Last week, we looked at the unspeakable joy that came to Zechariah, uh, the priest uh, who was told by an angel that he and his wife, who had been barren all these years, were going to give birth to a boy that they would name John. And John would be the predecessor, the herald, the, the long-awaited uh, Elijah type to the Messiah. John's birth, even the very announcement of John's birth, was an announcement that the Messiah was coming. And so we saw that. We saw, uh, and in one sense, what we saw then was a reality that's important for all of us to remember that uh, the grace of God at a theological level always means the goodness of God at a personal level. Like God doesn't, God isn't gracious at some academic kind of theological, oh, grace, unmerited favor, oh, yeah, I get that. But God's grace means that he's also good, that he's compassionate and kind to his children. Now, that doesn't mean that every single thing you want, you're going to get uh, if you follow Christ. It doesn't even mean that, that he's going to stop all the bad things from ever happening to you. Uh, it does mean that he will be with you but, and that his grace will be felt in tangible ways. I mean, for example, I doubt Zechariah and Elizabeth wanted for the future of their son to include a beheading by a ruthless and paranoid uh, king. And yet that is exactly what their son would face in his, uh, in his life, in the work and calling that he was to be a witness to the Messiah. Now, last week, we Part of the focus was on, on Zechariah's, uh, I don't know what you would call it, mistrust, his unbelief, uh, his faltering faith. And it's interesting because that actually sets up a theme that I mentioned in the introductory sermon to Luke that seems to run throughout the book of Luke, something that Luke really wants to drive home. And that is this idea that uh, the people, as you read uh, the gospel accounts, the people that you would normally expect to get it don't usually get it. And then the people that you wouldn't necessarily think would get it are the ones that get it. And so, you know, as, you, as we see this, we see, you know, here's Zechariah, the priest. I mean, he's a trained follower of God. I mean, he, he is... A, he is a professional religious person. I mean, it's, you would expect that of all people, he 
would have been prepared for the coming Messiah. Of all people, he would have received the message of the angel with gladness and just hope and, and happiness. But the, the angel comes and announces, and he's like, well, how, can I, how do I know what you're saying is true? And, uh, and then, in today's passage, we, we meet a young woman. And, and if, if the trained professionals can't believe God when he speaks, what hope is there for this young woman, this teenage girl who lives in a no-name village? Like, what hope is there for her to have faith? And really, what hope is there for you and me? I mean, if Zechariah can't believe God and take him at his word, what hope is there for you and me to take God at his word? Well, let's stand and read God's word together here. Luke chapter 1. Beginning in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born to you will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative, Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son, And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. The grass withers and the flowers fade, and yet the word of the Lord stands forever. But you may be seated. And so as we look at this unexpected blessing, uh, 
we break it down uh, today in three, three sections here, the unexpected greeting, the unexpected announcement, and the unexpected witness. So first, in the unexpected greeting, it's been just over six months, well, probably more like seven or eight months, given you know, conception and all of that, but it's, uh, Elizabeth is six months pregnant, and so it's been about seven, maybe eight, we really don't know how long, between Gabriel's visit to Zechariah and Gabriel's visit to Mary. Uh, it's interesting that when Gabriel shows up in the temple, he shows up quietly. He doesn't announce, he doesn't greet, he just stands there quietly until Zechariah sees him and is startled by his presence. Which then caused me to start wondering, like, what was going through the angel's mind? You know, here he is, he's in the, the holy room, not the holiest of holies, but the holy room where only priests are allowed to go. Is he there before Zechariah? Does he have time to look around and look at stuff in that room? Because remember, those rooms are designed to, like, help you understand the holiness and beauty and majesty of God. And so, I mean, did Zechariah look around at it and say, oh, yeah. That's nice. Or do you look around and be like, what? What? We don't look like that. Uh, I always wonder what angels think of the angels that we paint of them. They're like, I am neither chubby nor tiny. Uh, This is offensive. Uh, But they didn't have chubby, tiny angels in the holy room. But uh, so maybe it was just that he knew all, maybe God had revealed to his angel all that he was going to have to talk to Zechariah over. So perhaps he was just quietly getting the measure of the man before whom he stood. Uh, but here he is on the second leg of his journey, and he's not announcing the coming of the last prophet of the Old Testament, the last and greatest prophet of the Old Testament, the last and greatest and most privileged prophet of the Old Testament because this would be the only prophet in human history who got to witness what he prophesied about concerning the Messiah. Uh, And so while John is recorded for us in the New Testament, he is the last of the Old Testament prophets pointing us to Christ. But here, Gabriel isn't coming to announce the birth of the last and greatest Old Testament prophet. He's coming to announce the birth of the one to whom every prophet has pointed, the birth of the Messiah. And he does not come to Jerusalem to a priest's daughter. He doesn't come to Rome to a princess's daughter. He comes to a region called Galilee, to a village called Nazareth, such an insignificant village that it is not even mentioned in the Old Testament. There is no mention of Nazareth in the entire Old Testament. At best, scholars uh, surmise that it had probably anywhere from, from 400 to 500 people who lived in that village at any given time. It's such an insignificant town that they had a saying in Israel that you hear from Nathaniel, one of Jesus' disciples, when he, when he is told that they've met, they've found the Messiah. It's Jesus from Nazareth. And do you remember his response? He says, Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? 
And we hear Jesus of Nazareth, and we think it's some great title. It's not a great title. Um, it, would be, uh, it would be like uh, to, to Matt Warner saying, have you met Bob from Michigan? Matt would be like, no, and now I don't want to, because he doesn't care for Michigan. Uh, it would be, so where I grew up, it would be like saying, have you met Steve from Dundalk? Uh, or in Cleveland, it was, have you met John from Parma? I mean, it was, it was the place where, like, they still wore black polyester pants and white socks and black shoes, and now that's a popular thing to do, so nobody even understands that anymore. But saying that Jesus is from Nazareth is not a it's not an uplifting thing. It's a negative thing. Here, here's the angel going to this, this town that even Israelites don't care much about. It's in a region called Galilee. It's separated from Jerusalem by Samaria. Like the Samaritans, to, to get to Galilee, you either drive through, go through, drive through. You either have to go through Samaria or you have to cross the Jordan, go up on the east side of it. Yeah, east. And then cross the Jordan again. And so it's not a great region. In fact, other than there's, it's not just populated by Israelites. It's got Samaritans that have worked their way in. There's Gentiles that live there. In fact, the Old Testament talks about Galilee of the Gentiles. And so here is, here is the angel going to this region, this village of four or 500 people to a young, poor, teenaged girl who is betrothed to be married to the village carpenter. Twice in the opening sentence, we are told Mary is a virgin. Now, some scholars who are critical and skeptical about the Bible, uh, and really more than just the Bible, skeptical about anything that God might do to intervene or act miraculously upon his creation, they would say, they're quick to tell you, now that word in Greek, that just means young woman of marrying age, which is fine. I mean, we can, we can accept that that is what that word means, but we also have to accept that culturally, up until the 1950s, that meant virgin. Like, young woman eligible for marriage, certainly in the first century, and really for quite a few centuries after that, meant a virgin. It was not a shock that a woman who was getting married was still a virgin. And it tells us more about our time that we don't understand that word than it tells us about that time and what they meant when they said those things. She's betrothed. She's betrothed to a man named Joseph. We can't just say, oh, she was engaged, because there was more to it than that. Uh, to be betrothed, you actually took vows. Like, your wedding vows were taken to be betrothed. You were counted as, uh, even viewed by your neighbors and society, as husband and wife, though you were not husband and wife. Uh, you, uh, to end a betrothal, was the same as ending a marriage. It required either death or divorce. You couldn't just hand the ring back and walk away from it all. Uh, the only thing that was lacking or missing from the betrothal to the wedding was that for that year-long betrothal, those two were not to ever spend time privately one-on-one. 
If they were together, they were together publicly or together with other people. Uh, it was just, uh, it was un. It wasn't prudent, it wasn't wise, uh, and it wasn't, uh, it just wasn't a good show. And so you wouldn't, they wouldn't be together. And it was to protect their honor and their name and to protect them from temptation. And so it's interesting that Gabriel goes to Zechariah and he seems he seems pretty quickly perturbed with Zechariah. He goes to Mary, and he seems very keen on kindness, on speaking to her respectfully. I mean, I would say there's a reverence, but not in a worshipful way. There's just a, there's a respect and a deference to Mary. He says, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. He seems to have an excitement. He can't just stand there and look silently. He has to exclaim and say hello to her, and not just hello. When he says, O favored one, it contains within the word grace. It's a, not that this matters to anyone, it's a perfect passive participle. There you go. Write that down in your notes. That just means that it's not something that she has earned. This, her favored status is something that has happened to her, not something she's done. She is graced by God. Greetings, O one who has been graced. The Lord is with you. Even that isn't the typical blessing of the Lord be with you or may the Lord be with you. It's a statement of fact. He says the Lord is with you. She has been graced by God because God is with her. You might ask, how do we know she has experienced God's grace? Well, because God is with her. Well, how do we know God is with her? Because she has experienced God's grace. You know, she's a little overwhelmed, which is understandable. It seems almost like a royal greeting. She's a little perplexed. Why is this, first of all, why is this man talking to me? That also was a little, little bit of a no-no for a man to talk to, especially a betrothed young woman. And so she's wondering about it. And while she's wondering about it, uh, we receive the unexpected announcement. He says to her the same thing he says to Zechariah. Don't be afraid, Mary. It's great how he says to Zechariah, don't be afraid, Zechariah. So there is a kindness in him even as he interacts with Zechariah. But he calls them both by name. Because we know to, to call someone by name is to put them at ease, to, to help them. Now, I mean, in today, you're like, Why, how, do, how do you know my name? Why do you know who I am? Are you, are you Facebook stalking me? But here, he just says to her, don't be afraid, Mary. Behold, or he says, don't be afraid. You have found favor with God. And again, literally, you have found grace with God. And, you know, as I spoke, as I mentioned last week, it goes back to even Old Testament language, even all the way back to Genesis 6, where we're told Noah found favor with the Lord. Noah found grace with God. Here is Mary found grace with not God, not because she was perfect, not because she was sinless, not because she was something better than any other young woman in Nazareth or in all of Jerusalem or Israel but because God 
is gracious. It was undeserved, unearned favor that she received from God. You have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Jesus, the Latin version of Yeshua, the Hebrew name that means the Lord saves. Yahweh saves. God is salvation. And then he tells her uh, five things about this man who will be born. First, he says he will be great. Period. He will be great. John's greatness, if you look back at the announcement of John, when Gabriel speaks of John's birth and what he, com- what he comes to do, it's, he says, he will be great before God. There's a relation, there's a place that you measure his greatness by. Uh, greatness in the Old Testament is normally a greatness by comparison or a greatness in relation to other things or in position. Only in the, the Old Testament, when something is talked about as being great, period, it is almost always God. God alone is great, not in relation to anything, not in comparison to anything, but is purely great. And here Gabriel says, this one Jesus will be great, period, like that. And he goes on and says, he will be called the son of the most high. God is first referred to as most high in Genesis uh, by, uh, in reference to Melchizedek. So in reference to this Gentile priest, he's a He's an interesting person. He's a great study. You get a lot about him in the passage in Genesis and then also in Hebrews. Uh, The writer of Hebrews refers to Melchizedek a lot. His name, Melchizedek, means king of righteousness. He's called in Genesis the king of Salem, which can be translated the king of peace. So here's this guy whose name means king of righteousness. His title is king of peace, and he's called the priest of the Most High. And so, uh, Most High is then one of the names of God that the psalmist uses a lot. But here, Jesus is called the Son of the Most High. So, already we've been told, God alone is great, Jesus will be great. God alone is the Most High, Jesus is the Son of the Most High. And then the last three things that we learn, I'll just put them all together because we see them uh, exploding in Old Testament prophecy. The Lord will give to him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And so probably one of the most famous passages that we turn to, which we haven't yet here, I realized too late, but is Isaiah 9 throughout Advent. And we're told, to us a child is given, to us a son is born. And the government shall be on his shoulder. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness forever. And then even beyond that, we just finished our study in 2 Samuel. And in 2 Samuel 7, Nathan comes and prophesies to David 
about a son who would come from David, who would sit on David's throne forever. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 to 16, these are some of the things that are mentioned. It says, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. My steadfast love will not depart from him. Your house and your kingdom will be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Whatever else we think is going on here, it cannot be denied that Gabriel is announcing that the Messiah is coming. Gabriel is announcing the fulfillment of the prophecies that have been made about the Messiah is now at hand. And it is a child that will be born to you, Mary. The Messiah is coming and he's going to be born to you. Which, you know, given, given the mindset, given the understanding that really all teenage girls throughout all history have, it's not odd that she would be like, How? She says, how, how, how is this, how is this going to be? Uh, I'm, I'm a virgin. I do like, you know, how like, he has just announced all these things about the Messiah, the Messiah, the, the King, the day forever. Like, no question about like, oh, how's he going to live forever? Oh, how's he going to sit on David's throne? There hasn't been someone on David's throne in forever. She says, how? Um, I'm a virgin. And by the way, she doesn't use the, I'm a young woman of marrying age. No, she says, literally, I have known not a man. So we just translate it to virgin because then you don't have to go home and tell your kids, what does she mean she never knew a man? But now you do because I just said that. So (laughs) she says, how's this going to be? I've not known a man. This is different, listen, this is different from Zechariah. Zechariah asks, how will I know? How shall I know this? Because I'm old and my wife is advanced in years. There's a difference between I don't understand and I don't believe you. Those are two different statements. It's interesting that Gabriel's answer is much like what your answer will be when your kids say, what does that mean? She didn't know a man. I mean, it tells us things, but it leaves a few things out. We don't really know much. He says, uh, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. So we don't know how, like specifically, other than this is how. The Holy Spirit came upon her and and, and the power of the Most High overshadowed her. Which again then, Brings us right to when he says he'll be called the son of the most high. It's the power of the most high that will overshadow her. The language takes us all the way back to creation. When the spirit of God hovered over uh, the uncreated, uh, well, uncreation. Uh, It takes us to, uh, takes us to Sinai. When the cloud of God comes down and overshadows the mountain and God brings the law to his covenant people points us to the temple 
when the Shekinah glory of God comes down and fills the temple and the, and the cloud of God's presence overshadows the temple, the place where God is worshipped. And so we're told, even without details, we're told, therefore, he will be called holy, the Son of God. Because it is, because this one to be born will be born of God, he will be holy because he will be God himself. This will be God. He will be fully, entirely, totally the Son of the Most High, even as he will be fully, entirely, totally the Son of Mary. Like any of you who have children, you know this is true. Like they're entirely yours and entirely your spouse's. Other than when you come home and your wife says, why don't you go ask your, why don't you go ask your son what he did today? He's like, why is he my son? <laughs> Apparently he didn't win the Nobel Peace Prize by what you're saying. But, but the reality is your children are always all yours, 100% yours, and 100% your spouse's. Uh, This one to be born, Jesus, is 100% Son of the Most High and 100% Son of Mary. He is God and man. I've talked about this before in other classes, but like, you know, the, the idea that he's half God and half man would mean that he's neither, okay? Because half man and half horse, what is that? That's right. Thank you. Centaur. Half... Half fish and half woman. What is that? Mermaid. Yeah. You don't look at them and say, oh, that's a woman. No, she has a tail for crying out loud. She's not a human. She's half human, half fish. Centaurs are half human, half horse. That means they're neither. They're not going to be accepted in either. I mean, you're going to go into the stable and the horse is going to be like, what are you? Or he's going to go to the dinner table and be like, no, 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 you get out. If Jesus is half God and half man, he's neither. He's some kind of weird mixture. Jesus is fully Son of the Most High, fully Son of Man. He is, and, and that's, that's what comes out here. He will be called holy, the Son of God. God interrupts the main way that we have passed on life And by doing so, he has interrupted the main way that sin is passed on generation to generation. We are born in sin, and this one is a direct, directly descended from the Holy One, and he, therefore, will be holy. And then it's great because Mary doesn't ask for a sign, so Zechariah asks for a sign, and he gets it, and he has to keep his mouth shut till John is born. Mary doesn't even ask for a sign, and Gabriel offers her a sign. He says, uh, just by way of a sign, he says, listen, your, uh, your, your relative, Mary, or sorry, your relative Elizabeth, uh, she has even conceived in her old age. This one who, who was called barren, she's six months pregnant, for nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing will be impossible with God. Here is a sign for you, Mary, that nothing will be impossible for God. This even reflects back to Genesis. In Genesis 18, when God comes and 
confirms to Abraham his promise that Abraham and Sarah will one day have a child. And this is a promise that, by the way, is about 25 years old. 25 years ago, Abraham told his wife, Sarah, hey, God spoke to me. We're going to have a child. And so they've moved a few times. He's lied about whether she's even his wife a few times. Uh, they've had, uh, they've brought the, the maidservant in to try to accomplish these things. 25 years have gone by and God comes now and he's speaking to Abraham outside of his tent. And this time it's not just a vague promise. It is when I come back at this time next year, you'll have a son. And we're told that Sarah laughed. She's like, yeah, I'm going to have a son now. You got to be kidding me. Uh, and, and we're told that this is God's response. Why did Sarah laugh? Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? Is anything impossible for the Lord? And here is Gabriel saying to Mary, this one who was called barren is now pregnant for nothing will be impossible for God. So here's a mid-sermon application. And I know you're all worried. What? Mid-sermon? Anyway, uh, so what situation are you facing right now that you know is impossible for God to fix? You know God's not going to do something. Is it a sin? Is it this... Does it feel like a 25-year-old battle with the same struggle and God is just not going to do anything about it? Is it a broken relationship, a, a parent, a child, a spouse, that it just feels like God can't do anything? Gabriel is talking to you. Look, this old woman just is six months pregnant. Nothing is impossible for God. Don't give up. Trust God. Turn to God. Cry to God. He is not just gracious theologically. He is good personally. Luke told us in his opening sentence, I am writing these things so that you can be certain of the things you've been taught. Have you been taught that God is good? Look to Luke and be certain that that's true. Have you been taught that God is powerful and uses his power to care for his children? Look to Luke. You can be certain that that is true. Mary's response is, is just beautiful faith and trust and submission. Literally, she says, I am the slave of God. Let it be to me as you have said. It's the same word, bondservant. Like our, we're, our, many of our Bibles, they don't like calling Mary a slave. She's the, she's the maidservant. She's the, she's the maid of Christ. She's the, and, but it's literally just the feminine because, you know, surprise, she's feminine. She's a girl, so she uses feminine words. But it's the word Paul uses to describe himself. I am the bondservant. I am the slave of Christ. 
She says, I am the bondservant. I am the slave of God. Let it be to me as you have said. Now for us to grasp and finish up our understanding of the significance of this overwhelming grace, we have to travel to the hill countries of Judah. Where Mary goes, she leaves Nazareth. She goes to visit her cousin, her relative Elizabeth. And we're told after uh, the song that she stays with her three months. So I don't know if Mary was there when John was born. Uh, it's hard to tell. I mean, it wasn't a quick walk to get from, uh, from Galilee to Judah. So it took some time. And so there's nothing that tells us whether she was or wasn't there. It's not necessary other than to, it gives us things to think about. We've already been told uh, that the child, John, will be filled with the Holy Spirit from birth. And now here, if you recall, we read that Mary or Elizabeth, when she heard Mary's greeting and felt the baby leap, we, we see that Elizabeth is then filled with the Holy Spirit. And then later, when John is born... Zechariah, we will be told, will be filled with the Holy Spirit. And again, we are reminded that the gospel turns all of our expectations upside down. Like you would assume that the priest who studied these things, he would be filled with the Holy Spirit first, and then he would talk to his wife about it, and she would be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then eventually their child, when he grew to the age of accountability, would also be filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, Sorry, that was a slam against not baptizing your children. Come talk to me after service, and we'll we'll discuss that. Uh, But here, the exact opposite happens. Here's a child from womb filled with the Holy Spirit. And then his mother is filled with the Holy Spirit. And then his a little slow on the uptake father is filled with the Holy Spirit. It's a beautiful picture of the grace of God. It's not academics. It's not what you know. It's not how you're doing. It's not everything you've done and accomplished. It's not your pedigree or your resume. It's grace. It's grace. What on earth does an unborn child What has an unborn child done to deserve to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Nothing. And as a father of four, I'll tell you, the first four months, they only show that they need grace even more. It's a beautiful exclamation by Elizabeth. Blessed are you among women. She says, you are blessed. It's not some strange Mary worship. She says, you are blessed among women. And she is. I mean, of all the women ever born, Mary gave birth to our Messiah. It's okay to say, wow, that's pretty cool. That's pretty blessed. I mean, that's, I mean I've had kids, but none of them were even close to Messiah. Uh, she, that's, we don't have to look at what one Uh, realm of Christianity does with Mary and say, okay, we got to just deny that she was anything good at all. We got to deny her faith. We got to deny that she was faithful, that she was obedient. We just, we just won't talk about her. We'll have a couple songs that we'll get uncomfortable singing uh, once a year. No, we can honor Mary. Elizabeth isn't ashamed to honor Mary. Blessed are you among women. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. She's blessed among women because of the blessing of the fruit of her womb. She 
is giving birth to the Messiah or will soon. The fruit of your womb is blessed. The Messiah is alive and coming soon. She says, why, why has it been granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? She's making no qualms about who deserves worship. The Lord growing in Mary's womb. Why am I blessed to be able to see you? When the sound of your greeting came to me, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. These are all very serious, very true, and I do, but I do have to share that there are times when I read this last one, and I do wonder if she said that loudly enough for Zechariah to hear in the other room as she's talking about Mary and everything, and she says, and blessed is she who believed what would be fulfilled by what was spoken to her. Oh, you got something to say? Do you want to, would you like to retort? Oh, no, you wouldn't? Okay, do you know how many arguments I've won in the last six months, Mary? Also, do you know why this place looks as good as it does? Because finally, I can put up what I think below. Anyway, so that probably goes too far. But there's, you know, they're human. They have these real reactions. I imagine it was pretty fun to have a husband who could not say no to anything for the next nine months. But, but looking at it more seriously, look at the beautifully significant order of the blessings. Blessed, Mary is blessed because of the grace of God. And then Mary is blessed because the grace of God has a name and a face. Jesus, the Messiah, he is alive and coming soon. And then finally, Mary is blessed because she believes God. First, there is grace. Then grace has a face. Grace is a person, Jesus Christ. The grace of God, the kindness of God, led God to send his son to earth to save us from our sin. And the only thing left is to believe it, to trust, to put your trust in God, to confess your sin and receive what Christ has done for you, not what you might do for Christ. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful to you for your goodness to us. Thank you, thank you, Jesus, our Savior, our Lord. We are indeed blessed because of the blessing you gave to Mary. And obviously, we would be blessed even if you had chosen someone else, but you didn't. You chose Mary, and so we thank you and praise you. We thank you for her. We thank you for the faith she gave, you gave to her to trust you. We thank you for the gift that Jesus Christ is to us, to her. God, would you just give us faith? Help us to live like we believe that nothing is impossible for you. If you can save a wretch like me, there's no end to what you could do. In Jesus' name, amen.